This is Stephen Derenset, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 17 for Monday, April 11th, 2011. Well, today I'm so excited that I get to present to you animation writer Stephen Darren Set. Um, this is our very first animation writer on the podcast, so I'm very, very excited about it. And he actually is also a successful independent feature producer and co-writer and also has worked as a writer producer in animation. So this is going to be really, really neat. Um, I want to remind you of your homework right now, and this is coming right up. This is Small Screen Big Picture by Chad Gervich. And I've been cracking it open and, and, and reading it, and I, uh, I think it's a really, really tremendous and helpful book. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. Um, basically, while a lot of the TV writing books talk about just the nuts and bolts of, of writing the episode or writing a pilot, um, what small screen big picture goes into is um, a lot about the industry. Everything from ratings to how the different studios and networks um, work and uh, what each of them might be looking for and how you can find out what they're looking for, the development process and how that works. And I can tell you that I've read a lot of books. I've read maybe 25 screen, like feature writing books and maybe another dozen uh, TV writing books. And I haven't seen a book yet that goes to this kind of detail about how the television industry works from top to bottom. And so Definitely an incredibly handy resource to have on your shelf. You can get it at tvwriterpodcast.com. It's under $11, and uh, a little bit of that comes back to help support the podcast, so definitely a worthy thing to do, and I would appreciate um, if you would help us in that way. Also, while you're at tvwriterpodcast.com, make sure you check out the TV Writer Twitter database, which continues to grow. It's over 700 writers and continues to climb. And while on the topic of a Twitter, make sure you follow me on Twitter at Gray Jones as my handle, and you can find out about things that are coming. Speaking about Twitter, I wanted to tell you about some upcoming events. Um, coming up very, very soon, late this week, there's going to be a roundtable podcast, and this is going to be featuring Gene Bowerman, who is a co-founder of Script Chat and writer of the excellent Balls of Steel articles at Script Magazine lately. Jamie Livingston, who is also a co-founder of Script Chat. Joshua Stecker, who is the West Coast and web editor for Script Magazine. And hopefully, I'm still trying to work this out, uh, Karen Walton of Inc. Canada. And this roundtable podcast is going to be all about using social networking to advance your TV writing career, getting the most out of Facebook and Twitter. And so uh, watch for this. It's coming soon. But why I'm mentioning it now is that uh, I want to solicit... If anybody out there, um, either you or somebody that you know, has had some kind of career advancement from Facebook or Twitter, um, it, either directly or indirectly, please send an email to mail at tvwriterpodcast.com by Saturday, April 16th. Uh, we would love to hear your story. We would love to read it on the podcast, and we would love to even talk about it in this roundtable podcast. So please do send those emails in. 
Um, by April 16th, you can let us know if your career has been Im impacted already by Facebook or Twitter. Also, another event that's coming right up, and you need to pay attention to this one. If you like procedurals, um, I'm going to have CSI Miami writer-producer Corey Miller on the next podcast. He's written for CSI and CSI Miami, NCIS Los Angeles. He's also written for The Forgotten and even... Uh, personal favorite of mine, Lois and Clark. Um, please send your questions in ASAP. Uh, I need them by Monday night of April 11th. Now, you might be hearing this podcast after April 11th. That's where following on Twitter is helpful, and you can get advance notice of these things um, a lot earlier. But on to Stephen Derenset. Can read a little bio about Stephen. Uh, Writer-producer Stephen Derenset was born and raised just outside Los Angeles. He made his debut when he wrote and produced the 1996 sci-fi indie feature, Bleak Future, on a shoestring budget. You're going to be amazed how cheap. Ain't It Cool News gave Bleak Future a terrific review when it first landed distribution in 1997 on Screen Edge Films in the UK, and it's currently available on DVD from Netflix and Amazon. He went on to produce the award-winning No Dance Film Festival hit Minimum Wage in 2000. He attended screenwriting classes at the American Film Institute and the UCLA Film, Television, and Video Program. While working as a script coordinator at Warner Brothers TV Animation, he was given a shot to pitch an episode idea for the animated series based on the movie Osmosis Jones called Ozzy and Drix. He got an assignment and his professional TV animation script writing career took off from there. He has also created over a dozen animated TV series pitches in the last 10 years that are in various stages of development. As an episodic TV animation writer, he's written for shows at Warner Brothers, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, and others. His ability to embrace fantasy while creating characters grounded in reality has contributed to his unique voice. In addition to his animation writing background, Stephen has also been working on new live-action feature scripts in the various genres of comedy, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. And Stephen also works as a freelance development consultant for independent writers and producers, using his expertise to help others bring their TV, movie, and animation projects to life. He can be reached via email at sdarrenset at gmail.com. That's S-D-A-R-A-N-C-E-T-T-E at gmail.com. And also, he's on Twitter at sdarrenset, same spelling, S D A R A N C. E-T-T-E. And he's said that if you want to contact him and find out more about animation writer writing, he is absolutely open to that. And uh, I think this podcast, I'm not going to do the usual conclusion. So um, I will mention, um, if you have any questions, you can send an email to mail at tvwriterpodcast.com. And also do make sure to check out our partner, scriptmag.com, where there's tons of helpful resources, not just for TV writing, but also for feature writing, and all kinds of other stuff. So, why am I still talking? Let's move on to my interview with Stephen Derenset. Here we go. This is Greg Jones, and I'm here with writer-producer Stephen Derenset, who specializes in animation but does a whole lot more. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. And I really appreciate you taking the time because you actually are our very first animation writer. And I know that there are a lot of writers working in animation. And, and it's, um, as I know we were speaking of before we started recording the podcast, it's something that there's a lot less 
um, in terms of learning material on how somebody might attack a career like this. So I think it's, this is going to be a really, really interesting interview for people. But um, as we always do, we want to start out with how you got started and you didn't start out in animation. But wh wh tell me where you grew up first. I grew up in the area that everyone likes to call the Inland Empire. It's actually, so I'm actually one of those rare people who's actually from California. So I am up about 65 miles east inland from Los Angeles. And so you produced a sci-fi indie feature in 1996 called Bleak Future. Was that your first foray or, or had you done a lot before that? That would be our first foray. And uh, I would say that before then, me and everyone and my friends who actually did this together were screwing around with cameras since high school. We actually made two feature-length videos with VHS cameras four years prior to this. Well, feature-length with, with VHS. I, I remember those days, cut, like yeah. press play on one, record on the other. Yeah. <laughs> and then we did Bleak Future. It was basically just one of those um, things. We got together and just sunk our credit cards into, I guess, taking the advice of, hey, this Robert Rodriguez is going around and Kevin Smith's going around. They're they're wasting their credit cards and are having successes. So let's do that too, except this time we're gonna, not going to make a film like El Mariachi or, or guys talking at a uh, liquor store. So uh, we had the idea of Bleak Future, which was going to be a parody of all those um, end-of-the-world Mad Max genres. Mm -hmm. And we shot that, and it, for, it came to about like $8,000. Wow. Shot an actual Super 8 film in the Super desert. Super 8? Super 8. Wow. Sound-striped. Uh-huh. So it sounds awful. But actually, since then, uh, the director of the film and a director and co-writer, he's actually mastered the film, and it's on DVD, and it's like he's done a lot to it. Mm -hmm. But um, that was very much white knuckles, uh, seat of our pants filmmaking, and it was a brutal yet very rewarding experience. Mm -hmm. And then from that point on, taking some classes, uh, I went to um, I attended UCLA, then later on I went to um, UCLA Extension for film classes and took some uh, writing courses at AFI. And I was really kind of going into the producing direction based on what we did. But, you know, it was just a different thing. I was very hands-on with Bleak Future. It was, like just, it was very much like just not just a guy who said, hey, do this and that. And I was there on the set every day. I was also a co-writer of this, too. So I was very much interested in what was going on with the project from a day-to-day -day creative basis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but later on, I would understand that, that producing, especially when it comes to Hollywood, that's not a lot of it, especially if like, you say like a producer or something, that's not, what it, that's not the case. It's more about uh, making the connections and making money, trying to get that stuff together and trying, you know, keep a creative vision too, but trying to keep a financial vision together. And it wasn't quite my cup of tea. Um, I had a follow-up film called Minimum Wage I produced. Uh, it was the same writer. That didn't turn out too great and it doesn't even have a distributor at this point. But around that time is when I had the opportunity to focus on my writing. I was doing feature stuff and never really considered any kind of TV, especially animation writing mm -hmm. for TV. It would just be happenstance because it would be, I was looking for work and I became a temp. And one of the first jobs I had as a temp was a pretty big one. I was at Warner Brothers TV Animation. Wow. Yeah. It was there where I would get my first paid writing gig for a show that's actually no longer there. It was on for two seasons called Ozzy and Drix, which was a TV version of the uh, film Osmosis Jones. Maybe you remember that one? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was a start. It was, it was more or less me being, again, I think you and all the other podcasts, there seemed to be a lot of evidence of this, people being there, being someplace at the right time. And being ready for the opportunity. Right, yeah. I, when I was there, I, I was a script coordinator, but part-time. So I would actually work for two or three other people and 
and go around and make copies of scripts, sometimes do small editing and things like that. And I would like follow those shows and think like, I, I well, look at their outlines and stuff. I can do this stuff. This is easy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pitch this idea. And I, I spoke to the guy I worked for who was um, a big producer there at the time. He's, he's still Warner Bros. Now, now, and his name is Alan Burnett. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, can I pitch you something sometime? He said, okay, well, possible. But, but the situation was, and he already had a staff of writers and go-to people. They, they didn't have a staff, but you know, as I'll explain here in animation, like 99% of it's all freelance. Mm-hmm. He wanted a writing sample from me, and I wrote a, this is a very strange way to break through when it comes to a writing sample, but I wrote a spec of the show The Tick. The Tick? Not, <laughs> yes, but not That's, the cartoon. Uh-huh. The uh, live action show that was on for one season uh-huh. in, in, in 2000, 2001. Now that goes against the prevailing wisdom. <laughs> And what? And I, I just had an idea, and I just actually repurposed some characters, some stuff I had before, and some older projects I did. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I just thought, well, this character could fit in this world definitely. And I put him in the Tick world, and I wrote this whole, wrote this outline, wrote the script, and I said, okay, we'll I have a, I have a sample for you. I gave it to him, and it took about a couple of weeks, and got back to me, and he, and he said, you know, he, he was very laid back about it. He didn't say, oh my god, this is great. He said, okay, Steve, so what do you want to write? Cool. And I was, and I pitched, okay, well, I, I pitched my idea. I pitched a couple of them. He liked both of them. But they're only able to buy one. Mm-hmm. I remember that day it was sort of, it didn't quite sink in. He said to me, okay, you got an assignment. And he walked up into his office. I'm like sitting behind the cubicle going, okay. <laughs> Assuming you know what that means. And <laughs> like a long beat went by. I had to get back and I said, so this is me and I'm going to write a script. I said, yeah, you need to go start on the outline. Write like the wind. He said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then get your paperwork in order. So Now, did you have an agent already by this point? I did have an agent. I was partnered with my wife at the time. We had an agent for some things. And at least they were able to broker the deal for me. It was a very simple cut and dry. There wasn't a deal had to be brokered. They mm-hmm. had a set amount of money to pay for scripts. And that doesn't change. There's no negotiating. So that was easy to put that together. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that is interesting because um, uh, I know that there was... Uh, I mean, p- part of the whole strike was that they wanted to unionize animation, and it didn't happen. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think we sometimes assume that animation writing and reality writing and um, scripted dramatic writing is all the same in terms of payment and and uh, and that kind of thing. Well, it's certainly not, and it's not even in residuals and royalties either. Mm-hmm. This was um, 2002 when I finally started the, this assignment. Mm-hmm. So even the strike of 2008 wasn't even really... On horizon. In fact, I haven't even joined the WGA yet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that was that was my first major assignment. It was a, it was pretty big. It was a good show, and that, sh- that show that season got nominated for an Emmy. Oh wow! Not my episode in particular, but yeah. So that allowed me to get into the TV Academy. So that's that was cool. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was in a, then I was into the um, Writers Guild of America after that. Very very cool. So that didn't they know they have they have an adjunct just for animation writers too they like an animation writers caucus where they try to um and try to get those those benefits and mm-hmm. I guess we're sort of because we kind of fell through the cracks so it was always a hard time to really get us a good voice and representation of they can't even decide what union <laughs> <laughs> covers us because it's a, it's not, we're not animators we're not animation directors and and we're not live action writers so what are we well, mm-hmm. we're still script writers. So it doesn't matter if it's being shot off a camera with actors or it's being shot with um, cells and flash animation or whatever. So is that generally how it works, that you will you will pitch an idea, f- as a freelancer anyway, that you yeah. will pitch an idea for the show, and if they go for it, they just give you one commission for the script, no matter 
how much time it takes or how many rewrites you have to do? For me, yeah. And I think for most, the vast, the vast majority of animation writers there, it's, it's the same deal. It's very much a super freelance. It's project by project. And if you can just get a, the, the ear of the story editor of that show, and if he's not already staffed and he has um, some, t- you know, we mean staff, they don't have the staff. Like I said, staff means they already have their script orders. Mm-hmm. From, he'll probably already have some friends or people he knows he's worked with before. So it'll be like four or five writers writing so if it's like a 13 season or a 22 episode season, they'll write the bulk of that. And if it's sort of new to him, he doesn't know you, give him or her, you give him a call and say, hey, I want to pitch this idea. And a lot of it's even done by email. So you just pitch it, pitch a bunch maybe, like, uh, but you got to like kind of narrow it down. So maybe if you have like 12 ideas, try to get it down to five ideas or even four. Hmm. Just concise sentences, not even paragraphs. Wow. And then shoot that over. And sometimes uh, I've been caught off guard where it's like, I want to pitch something. And then the guy's, okay, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let me get my glass of water. Uh, where's my... Yeah, and I had a pitch over the phone and it worked out. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's... Even now, I think that's getting a little more corporate-like live-action television where you're trying to pitch ideas. It's getting a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Even just less than 10 years ago, it was very much just trying to get something on the phone and you can pitch like something on... You can either pitch an idea over the phone that just listen to until yes or no right there or do it via email. Do it a lot through email. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sort of like, it's not exactly super open door, but it's not closed like live action. It's a crack, the door is open, get your foot in the door is pretty easy. And if you have a, if you have a track record of stuff you've done already, you get the ball rolling and then, you know. Hmm. So that's interesting. So so there's there's never a meeting of the writers. It's all you individually pitch your, your ideas and, and you work completely remotely from the other writers who might happen to be writing for the same season. There's a couple of cases where we, uh, me and a few other writers on a, a, one series I can probably get to later. We got did get together, but nine times out of ten, I don't even I don't even know who the other writers of the series are until the series airs. Hmm. Unless I run into them at a party, like, oh, I'm writing on that show too. It's like, really, you wrote an episode? Great. I I didn't know. Wow, interesting. I mean, it, it, I've I've not known who the director of the episode was until it's aired. Wow. I didn't know who the director of an episode was that I wrote until like two years after it aired, until I met him. Oh, I directed that show. Really. Because I guess animation has a long lead time, and there's like a lot of people that once you send your script in, which is like the first thing you do, you don't hear from the result of what you've done done for as many as nine months or longer. And in that time, they've had that you know they've done storyboards, they've done animation, uh, they've done directing, they've done the voice work, and you don't know. And sometimes you just forget about. It. I've actually written, embarrassingly enough, I've written a couple of things I've forgotten about, and then it's the airs on TV. Like, oh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I, I pay the rent. Six months from now to go, how can I forget already? Wow. Because it's just, it's, it's such a long, long lead time. Mm-hmm. If you like work on a live action show, like a sitcom that shoots every other week on a very weekly basis. And if you write a show in, wrote an episode of that show in say, um, March, you will see it in April. Wow. Sooner. So, but not for, not for animation. Well, and it's interesting that you don't get residual. So, so that yeah. must mean that you're, um, always active trying to get projects going. Always active trying to get projects and having to do uh, day jobs on the side you know, or other kind of freelance animation that's outside of actual studio work or independent studio work. Mm-hmm. And that's tough. I mean, I have gotten royalty checks before from Europe. I don't even understand quite how that works. It's, all I know is that in the United States and Canada, where we don't have, we don't get residuals for re-airing of anything. Mm-hmm. However, if you're a show like, if you're on a show like Family Guy or any of those primetime shows like The Simpsons, you do. And the reason is because they don't really consider animation as much as they do as a, as a, as a sitcom. Hmm. Interesting. And because when it airs, it airs at prime time, it's a sitcom, 
there's a lot of heavy heavy hitting people involved. It does get the residuals. You do get everything you would if you wrote a Big Bang Theory or you write American Dad. It's you're going to get residuals for it. And there's piles and piles of money, so I'm sure there's enough to just throw around. Piles of money coming in. But it's interesting how I would get I would get a few royalty checks. I just had the blue just from like Czech Republic and uh-huh. countries from Russian satellites. I didn't even know they had any kind of independence. Here you go, like. Two rubles for <laughs> this thing. This Aussie trick's really great. Wow. Uh-huh. And I, I actually, it's like a few hundred dollars here and there every now and then. It's a nice surprise, but mm-hmm. it's not something you can live on. Yeah. Wow. Well, well back to uh, Aussie and Drix. Um, tell me about uh, a growing cell. I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, the cartoon. I don't think anyone else might, might not be familiar with the cartoon as opposed to the movie. Mm-hmm. The movie had um, Bill Murray and he got infected by a virus who was going to kill him and a cold pill and a red blood and a white blood cell had a team together like a, like a buddy-buddy cop movie mm-hmm. to put a stop to it. It was the same idea for the series, except this time the virus escaped into a kid. So there's a 15-year-old kid had um, Ozzy and Drake slipping his body. Mm-hmm. And in this episode, the kid was just eating too much. He was getting a little, getting kind of paunchy, eating a lot of fatty foods after school and then having snacks and stuff. And uh, eventually a, a fat cell escaped. No, no, actually the fat cell was kidnapped by some bad cholesterol who took him downtown to the body. And the whole idea was that he was kidnapping all these fat cells. And the fat cells were personified by, by rich people. Mm-hmm. Very wealthy, fat, rich people. And it was, I took the idea of, of Augustus Gloop from Willy Wonka. As the kid. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So that, that big, that big cat, oh, I want some chocolate. You know, he, was there, <laughs> he was kidnapped and he runs through a bunch of fat kids just like him. And the, the bad cholesterol put him together so he can create a devastating um, artery blockage, which could cause a heart attack. So, yeah, you love that idea. I had another one where the character Drix becomes a uh, Dr. Phil talk show host mm-hmm. and gives giving medical advice and uh, he starts giving bad advice. And that would have been commissioned too if that didn't quite work out. But I think it was a great little show. I only had um, one or two seasons. One of the reasons why I didn't really continue because they just couldn't figure out a way to make toys, primarily. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, if, really, it's, um, another thing I should mention, especially about TV animation today, is how much consumer products and animation are working hand-to-hand. And more often than not, the consumer products will have more veto authority on what will continue. Wow. Because you look at it as very much their realm. It's like, we're, you know, these are... They are shows, but they're also commercials to help sell our products that we're making here. So if you can't sort that out, you know, they're not going to want to back you for renewal. And the network say, okay, well, Consumer Products says if you can't figure a toy out, then there's no reason for you to exist. I know that sounds kind of cynical, but um, I I guess that's a lot about children's TV. It's very much about, you know, selling toys and cereal. And I guess a lot of people hate that. And I I think there's a lot, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of good things coming out of that with that kind of mentality. But at the same time, it does let these shows happen. Mm-hmm. I do think it's it's important to recognize that just as a dramatic writer, uh, I, I was just reading um, Chad Gervich's uh, small screen big picture recently, and, and he's oh. definitely a, a proponent of, um, as you're writing, understanding the, the mm-hmm. life of this show, particularly for a pilot, if you want to make a pilot that you would keep in mind, either it's going to be serialized and it's not going to be very likely to be um, uh, syndicated, but it might do very well in things like uh, DVD sales and and that kind of thing. Or write a procedural, w- keeping in mind that this would be a great one for syndication and and deliberately trying to stream it towards that direction. I I guess it's just 
the same thing with animation, that these are market conditions that you just got to keep in mind as you're writing. He's definitely right about that. It's, it's, it's almost more so. It's like a very, it's like a Frankie universe sort of thing where it's, it's very super, <laughs> it's very super capitalistic in regards to um, uh, what they make and why. And, and also animation, uh, I, I don't know so much about Canada, but in the States too, uh, the government has, um, they have like a lot of niches, make sure it's educational. So at the same time you want to like, want to keep a show that sells cereal and toys. On the other hand, they have like, well, this is be educational and try to lay off selling cereal because it's making America fat. So, and then you got, you're in the middle and well, I guess the Oz and Drix episode sort of worked out in that regards. Mm-hmm. But then more often than not, it's, it's a real pain in the butt to, to, try, to try to serve all these masters. Uh, you know, dramatic primetime TV, especially the, the uh, clearly with the Fox sitcoms and those, anim- those animated sitcoms that don't have any kind of that guidance stopping them. Hmm. Because it's just it's just purely fun entertainment. But you know when it's when it's daytime, even if it's like not even if it's like twenty four hour daytime, like the stuff goes on Nickelodeon where it's airing all the time, those shows they still have to serve the guidance of of, of, of selling toys and um, government initiatives to encourage better people. Well, so, sometimes that can work in your favor. I, um, that particular episode, um, Growing Cell, was selected by the Centers for Disease Control as. Uh, as a, a video that they wanted kids to have a more active and healthy yeah, lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, that that kind it, of thing uh, is really cool. I didn't see it. I was descri- it was describing what happened. It was basically they had a commercial about you know trying to be fit, and I think they had the guy who did the voice of Ozzy, who was you know not Chris Rock, just a Chris Rock impersonator, mm-hmm. talking about hey to stay fit, and they had clips of that episode in that commercial. So I never saw it, and uh, but I heard it. that's what it was like, and I was very excited about was singled out. Mm-hmm with animation it's just like when you're writing a feature how there's uh there's a, a catch-22 because um they really really want for existing properties to be uh, exploited yeah especially lately yeah so they're always looking for a comic book that can be adapted or or a novel that's already out there that can be adapted to the screen because it's got a pre-existing um audience and so it must be challenging for for developing animated material um, to know well what kind of merchandise can this come from if it's not one of the you know Superman or or other kinds of of well established characters that are already way um, mm-hmm. out of your jurisdiction. Yeah, I know a couple of studios I work with that they were really really relying on their old stable of characters and really trying to reinvent them over and over again. And sometimes some of the reinventions are kind of cool. Scooby is sort of like an evergreen concept that's been around for so long and that but i'm I'm starting to wonder if they're running out of ideas but the last incarnation is pretty nice and um you can see how some scoobies are better than others but with a character like that it seems they have a, a very a evergreen popularity and but they're not exactly being in a dead horse at least just yet hmm. but when you when you go and develop stuff i've really tried to be as new as possible i haven't had i actually I had a couple opportunities to pitch stuff for existing properties mm-hmm. like warner brothers and nickelodeon and um because they want to reinvent them, the stuff stuff from the seventies and eighties, and say hey, we want to reboot this. this. That's the term now. We're rebooting these, rebooting these shows and these characters. But more often than not, when I, I pitch on this, it's trying to do something original. And in that case, when you pitch something original like that, where you just have the original concept is not really a toy, anything attached to it, what the studios and networks are looking for is is basically what the edict is that at that point where they're looking for something for is it boys action or girls cuddly or stretch and squish characters or all the above. And I've been to a lot of pitches where it seems like that's such a moving target where I would talk to someone, uh, I have an email to set up a meeting, like, we're going to meet in a couple weeks. I'll see you then. I'm excited about the pitch. And I get there. It's like, yeah, remember I said it was for girls. 
now <laughs> now it came down that we're looking for boys eight, eight to nine or some strange age range or eight, eight and a half to 11 years old and it's always good to, and, and i've been to pitches where that's happened where i've just adapted immediately like oh okay well i can see that we can age this down this is why and blah blah and, you know that's always i, I guess recommend anyone's going to be pitching on tv like be prepared to change on on the fly wow because that's what they do in tv anyway i mean mm-hmm. you know Unlike a feature, when you when you bring you know you you bring the script and the script is pretty much it is what it is, and they will rewrite it, and the director will have his vision. But with TV, there's these development executives, and they like to develop things, or at least try to. So if you come in with a with a kind of full on pilot written, more often lately I've heard there's more people reading it, but more often not, they really want to develop it. So, and especially true of animation, I really don't write pilots for animation. At least I did a few times to expect pilots. I have, I have written one not too long ago, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But I'm not even going to pitch that pilot. I will have to go and just, just verbally pitch it and maybe leave a leave, a leave behind. Mm-hmm. I've had situations where I've had full-on art, just wonderfully rendered beautiful art of characters and things like that. I've gone in with, with, uh, with a flash animation of an entire series. I've gone in with um, just, just notes, just like two pages of just double-spaced text. And I've gotten like the same responses of all of them. Not necessarily they were bad or anything, just that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a different levels of, there's different levels of development they want to be engaged in. Mm-hmm. So lately for me, I would, I would say that I've had more luck just pitching, pitch an idea, come in and talk about it more, maybe leave and leave behind, not necessarily having a script. If I want to write a script, I will on the side, I can keep it in the back burner. If I can pull it up like, oh, oh, do I have a script? Hold on a second. Here it is. Bling, you know, done. Mm-hmm. But um, that's the case. That's the case for live action TV, and it's also the case for animation. But it is true about animation when you when you pitch and you will you will have the opportunity to bring in art. And I do want to say this in regards to who will probably have a better success with writing animation is still people who can do art. Mm-hmm. If you can draw and tell a story, and you can write a script and spell. Your chances over a person who can't draw, but who only can write, or someone who can write and can't draw, it's 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 exponentially better. Now, is is that because you understand the characters more, or is that actually a, f- a physical, logistical thing with your ability to pitch? All that. I think a lot of networks lately, they're looking, um, if you can draw, you may be able to direct your own stuff. You'll be able to draw your own stuff, design your characters. You'll also be there on the line. You can you know help make sure it goes through uh, to save some money if you're doing everything, you know, mm-hmm. writing and trying to get a separate, a separate artist now, a separate writer. And, you know, there's, it, there's a whole vision thing, too, where you can create a great character, like a lot of the stuff that's on um, Nickelodeon and the Cartoon Network, a lot of storyboarded. They don't even have scripts. They don't actually have written scripts. They might have some stuff written on the boards, like some dialogue suggestions and things like that. But someone like me would never come in to write a script mm-hmm. because it's all done there in the room and story. That's how the story's told. Have you ever been in a situation like that where... You're in a pitch and they don't get it, and you say, "Well, he looks like this," and then they get it. <laughs> or how how does that uh, drawing play in? It, I've I've had been, I've I've had some of that. I've had the char- I've the characters where they were, oh, this is so cute and stuff like that, and we have really great rendered characters and pitches, and then we sort of second guess ourselves. I had to also tell them and say, you know what, I like this. However, other people they might want to change it. So maybe you don't want to have this art to be so on point. Maybe you want to like just have some ideas or sketches, but change ethnicities or don't rely on this ethnicity or change the color or change the style or the ages and don't dress them in such nice clothing and you're like oh my god so much why did i like have like a ralph lauren outfit collection where these characters laid out <laughs> and that was like early on i was like that was just when i started and i started learning lessons like okay it's great to have 
really developed art. But when you're going to go on a pitch and if you know someone there and you've written for them before, just mind we just go on, go it alone. And uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, if it's a good developer person, they're like, oh, I just know this really speaks to me. What you tell me on this page, I think I know the perfect artist because they do. Because, you know, the, the, the good ones in animation will also know great artists and great story, great directors. And they'll try to assemble like that's a perfect that's a perfect thing for this guy. She'd be great as a character designer. You know, I could just totally coalescing. Hmm. So, so if I'm reading you correctly, if a person wanted to write in animation, obvi- obviously they have to like animation. That's going to start it. Um, but also they, they need to be able to have at least some ability to draw the characters and also strengthen pitching. Um, yeah. and, and in the pitches, if they were practicing this kind of thing, um, you, you need to have a number of different ideas and, uh, and also <laughs> practice with somebody who can say, change that to a girl, change that to five <laughs> years younger. Well, I'd say that's a good, good, good uh, rule of thumb for all pitching. If you have a chance to just like, uh, just do a run through with a friend or mm-hmm. a colleague or, or, or someone who's actually an executive that you know is a friend that you can pitch to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I know a lot of people don't have access to that, especially starting out, but you have access to friends and stuff like that. You know, it's. One one thing, um, advice for writing, I always try to have like a circle of people to read my stuff. I have about five or six people that will read anything. If I think it gets to a really good point, I give it to them. And some's like, you know, some's like a mother-in-law, some's a friend, someone's an actual story editor that I work for, some's a guy who hates everything, another one is like uh, my brother or whatever. And uh, and, you just, and, just, and that's how, and I just send an out and said, please read when you get the chance. Someone will read it straight away. Like, oh, it's great. 40 hours later, someone will have to like, you have to call up like, did you get a chance to read this yet? About a month later, you'll get a really good idea about what you wrote, and I've gotten some really good stuff. I mean, I've gotten, I've got some real pat in the back. It's like, oh, this is great. You're always a good writer. And then I've got some stuff like Steve. I don't know what you're talking about here. This is a real wreck, and let me tell you why. But it's not totally unsalvageable. And you can just find a medium, a medium point between all of those readers to help you uh, just become a uh, better, make create a better pitch or better script. That's that's, that's something you got to try. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you discussed that kind of approach on the show, but mm-hmm. and um, I think a really important thing too is uh, how how would somebody obtain animation scripts um, to study to to at least learn the format and and um, learn how to tell the stories. They can email me if they want. I got a few. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's like a PDF scripts online. There's um, I think Animation Script Magazine has a website. There might be some scripts there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was exposed to animation scripts because early on because they they were my job. I had to edit and coordinate them. I make copies and uh, from pitch to outline to um, several drafts. So I had the opportunity to really see the scripts. Uh, they were they were there every day, and was, that's how I learned. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they're out there online. Just like um, there's a lot of. I mean, I know Twitter. There's like um, several people have online sources, and um, there's also some features as well, like the Pixar Toy Story films is out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also hanging out with animation writers helps. I, I have a friend who's an animation um, writer here in Toronto, and uh, yeah. <laughs> we were out for uh, for beers the other night with a, a fellow animation writer, and all of a sudden they started talking about ideas. They um, they both worked on that show, Max and Ruby. And um, yeah. Yeah. and all of a sudden they start. Well, what if what if Max did this? Well, yeah, and then Ruby could do this. And just hanging out with them for a while, I immediately got a, a much better sense for how the stories were were started. Um, either somebody's neurosis or or something, mm-hmm. just one um, situation 
that they wanted to exploit and then work around that. Yeah, it's definitely good to think that way. And you can think adult, you can think as an adult as much as you want. And, but, you know, eventually you, you can think of some idea almost like something would come from curb enthusiasm. And you think, okay, okay, how, how would, how would this relate to kids? And you can, and you know, things never change. And if it's like writing a cartoon show about a high school, it's, there's going to be a situation where someone was simulated that you can, you can draw from. Mm-hmm. If you're at those two guys talking about at the bar, you know, we were friends, you know, definitely there will be a situation relatable to kids there. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, kids are just small adults with, you know, they're not allowed to drive and vote. <laughs> I, at least how, that's how I, I figured. And I'm, um, that's what I try to, I, unless, unless I'm giving specific instructions about how to write a show, like this has to be this kind of age or it has to be very soft because it's for preschool. I really just try not to dumb it down too much at any kind of age range. And hmm. Often my, I preferred my first drafts to anything that's actually gone after has been edited. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's been a lot more about me and a lot more of the adult stuff. And also the story editors have been saying, well, yeah, of course we like, often like the first draft. But, you know, after it's gone through network notes and the, you know, there's, also, there's some, you know, to make sure it's, a, it's, it's not going to violate any kind of censorship, things like that. And eventually it, it, it does get watered down, but it, it, it has to anyway, because, you know, it has to meet broadcast standards and it has to be um, mm-hmm. a story and, and, you know, rewriting things eventually, um, you may think it just makes things worse. But any good rewriting, if you're doing it well, it's going to get better. And it's going to get better for who you work for. It's going to make who you work for happier. And it's going to end up a better script in the long run. Hmm. And that ties in with, in your bio, it says that you have an ability to embrace fantasy while creating characters grounded in reality. And I, I would think that that reality would, um, as much as, 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 uh, as the script would go through various incarnations, that it, it would keep you grounded to the real story that you wanted to tell. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, my reality is skewed, so I should have been a little more detailed than that. Um, but yeah, again, you know, all, all these cartoons are they, they always they always say like well, we try to think of really try to be really imaginative, really fantastic story, but eventually they just need something, you know, that has to be believable. You know, if the kids are going to go on a quest, you can't just have them fly there all the way and just get the sword and everything works out and there's no there's no conflict. You know, and a good show, a good animated series will be just like any like any good TV. It's granted in some sort of conflict that's real. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to think of a perfect example. There's one show that's actually, some of the Adult Swim shows really good. And I think Adventure Time's a really great show where so much stuff on that. I don't know if you've seen that show or not. No. It's, it's great. Just check it out. So much of the show is just, it's, just, it's drawn fantastically. The universe is just crazy. It's very, very stylistic and playful. Yet all the problems are like, you know, real sort of adult problems that these kids and this and his pet talking dog are facing, you know. And they and they create problems on their own. They screw up on their own all the time. And they have other roadblocks. It's just stuff that we do. And you know that's kind of stuff speaks to me. And at the kind of people looking for quality work is that kind of something you can grasp. If it's something that's if it's a cartoon that's completely far fetched, then you know, you're just not going to gravitate to it. SpongeBob is another good example of that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I imagine as much as it's for mm-hmm. kids, it's also adults that you're pitching to, and so they've got to relate to it. I imagine too. Yeah, SpongeBob. I should have mentioned SpongeBob earlier. That show has ground because all those problems that goes on in SpongeBob's life—it's actually pretty real. Those episode once where he was trying to catch a bus to get out of this neighborhood, which is really deep, and I was like scared of this really deep, you know, under the sea neighborhood he haven't got before. No one spoke the language really, and he was trapped there. And every time he tried to get on the bus, he would miss it. 
Mm-hmm. And eventually, we all had we all had examples where we tried to catch a bus, and the SpongeBob was there, and he, and the bus came by, and the bus saw him and took off. And it's like, okay, <laughs> now it's now not, now it's not paranoia. This bus is out to get me. We all think uh-huh. you come to a bus and just you, you miss it by two seconds. How is that possible? Yeah, you know, there's something behind you. Can't miss a bus by two seconds. You wave and wave and wave. The person can't just break for two seconds, and then eventually the bus is like sneaking around holes and coming uh-huh. inside. And he's like a shark, is sneaking behind him, and then he turns around, and he's up behind his back, and it's like, you know. That that's taking that's a that's the real issue taken to the extreme. Mm-hmm. I think we all think about it. it's like go oh, take the real thing in life and just blow it out. As long as it's grounded in kind of reality, it's gonna be good. Very, very cool. Well, I would like to move on a little bit to um your live action stuff because you are still working on live action feature scripts yes. um in a number of different genres. And so tell me a little bit about that. After spending some time in animation, I, I, st- I still do want to transition to full-time to TV, st- uh, t- live-action TV, mm-hmm. dramas or comedy. I, I, I still have a passion for animation. I like to actually have an anima- animated show, but also like to run a TV show at some point. And uh, I've have a, I have a lot of, a lot of spe- specs and samples and um, some pitches coming up, so hopefully I've actually... Hopefully I have a chance maybe this season to finally get some more meetings to talk to some people about either becoming staff on a show or at least just having read my stuff so I could be considered for, um, you know, future episodes when it comes to it. Mm-hmm. And you're uh, you're shopping around a live-action supernatural comedy TV pilot. Yes. What, can you tell me anything about that? It is sort of like Ghost Hunters meets The Office. Mm-hmm. Makes any sense. It's a, it's, it's a show that's behind the scenes of a ghost hunting crew that comes to the United States from England and and it's less about the ghosts and more about the, the stuff that happened behind the scenes. And uh, that's another one of the stories where it's like, you know, it's it's grounded in fantasy in the sense that, you know, in this universe there's actually like ghosts and things like that going on. But there's so much diva stuff going on behind the scenes and the, re- and the relationships in fighting going on, on, on the making of the show, you, you miss it. So I, I just finished a script for it last year. It's an idea I've had for a while, actually. They were actually characters I drew from a feature I wrote. God, 10 years ago mm-hmm. and decided I want to repurpose these guys because um, I really liked it and uh, it was kind of a big cheat I actually managed it. I was able to use the first three pages of my old script and use it in the uh, in this in this TV pilot so that worked out so that that's um, and I'll tell you you know all writers like that if you have stuff that's worth recycling that's not bad but you know it just didn't have a fair shot or or whatever use it nothing no, don't throw anything away unless it sucks you'll, and you'll know if it sucks so you'll, you will definitely want to throw it away Mm-hmm. Well, actually, actually, that's that's interesting because I know Ellen Sandler uh, just had on a podcast recently uh, actually teaches a class on using uh, your feature um, to adapt to a, a pilot, a TV pilot. Mm-hmm. And I think so, often the way people start in the industry is by writing a whole bunch of features and these features never get produced. Maybe they're just used as writing samples, but maybe it has life not just as a TV pilot, but maybe it has life as animation in some form so i think mining your your uh, older material for that could be could be helpful if i'm reading you right yeah i have a couple examples i have a pilot that was based on a feature i wrote um that really wasn't working as a feature i just i just couldn't figure i just couldn't get the tone i couldn't get the voice it was like how is this gonna be really funny or is this because there's a lot going on there was like a there was like sort of a dark comedy like okay you know what let me just let me just try it as an hour long and, and i did and it's, it's, it is working out better as an hour long um i want to go on pitch it until i discovered there's another show 
shopping around as a pilot already. <laughs> That's happened to me several times where I've actually made something and then I thought, oh, this is great. It's a good idea. Well, of course it's a good idea because five other people now shopping the same thing. And oh, no. Two of them already are going to pilot and uh, like, ah, so. Wow. You know, it's, it's, it's tough to really um, try to find, create something that's really original at the same time. There's something I call obvious ideas, and people have to be careful when they think of a movie idea. Like, oh, this is great. It's such an, you know, why didn't I think it before? Well, everyone did, and it's, it's called an obvious idea, and sometimes you don't want to do that because mm-hmm. you might see a film like, I thought of that film idea. Well, a lot of people did too. When you look at that poster, the thing is that a bigger producer with money got it done and not you. <laughs> so that's 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 the difference, you know. Yeah, and uh, and then you also work as a freelance development consultant for independent yes. writers and producers. Why don't you tell me a bit about that? Uh, it's something I, I started doing for uh, just recently. I've had a, um, a couple of people that actually helped them develop some indie animated projects, and I would do the, to write the scripts and help them um, create pitch packages, and just, just for people who um, had resources like they can animate. They, you know, they're great for making um, videos and TV commercials and things like that, but they, they couldn't tell a story and they, they would need help with that. Mm-hmm. So they would, they would tell me the idea and i come aboard and just uh, develop and I can, I can do, I can just take what they have and just run with it in regards to helping them. Okay, I think you need a, a Bible here, you need to develop these characters, you need a pitch package, and then if, if, if it's suited, if you think it's something you want to make on your own, I'll develop a few scripts for you and actually write them. Yeah, and I guess that's a little different than... Um, it's not a script consulting service. It's like a, it's very. It's more a development thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I got. I, I would. I will admit to anyone. I just. I hate reading scripts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, if someone gives me a script to read, I'll read it. But more mm-hmm. often, I just. I just hate. You know, even my own scripts are just like, oh, it's, just, it's work. And even though I enjoy it, it's like this. Oh, it's this paperwork. It's like God. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would never wanted to go into becoming a, a script consultant or things like that. But. This is this suits me where I can say kind of think okay let me take what you have let me cobble together and uh, make something wonderful out of it. Very cool. And and if people want to contact you, they can email you. That's s daron set at gmail dot com. S d a r a n c e t t e at gmail dot com. That's correct. Cool. And also same spelling. You're on Twitter as well. I'm on the Twitter. Yes. At s daron set. Very, very cool. You should see all my three followers. They're fantastic. <laughs> well, um, I'm one of them. Oh, okay. Cool. Four <laughs> followers. Cool. Brilliant. Very, very cool. And, uh, and where could people see right now something that you've, you've worked on? Is, is it uh, available? Well, uh, your, your feature, the Bleak Future, is available on Netflix and on DVD. But um, yeah. your more current stuff, where could people find it? Some stuff you can see on YouTube. I, I would say if you um, look at my internet movie database and find a title you like, you might want to look it up. Uh, some stuff's on DVD. Uh, Crypto the Superdogs on a DVD collection. Uh, Ozzy and Drix, I'm not sure if it's on a DVD collection. Some of the later stuff were written recently for a company that actually ran into some uh, fi- funding issues. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe whatever's left of the Berlin Wall, you might be able to see some episodes airing. <laughs> some <laughs> some TV somewhere, you might be able to find it. But uh, I, I, I've written a lot of stuff the last few years where they didn't even air on American television, but they were like l- large hits in Britain and and then in, in Europe and and they were airing regularly there and I heard they're regu- airing regularly in Australia and New Zealand but not in North America so um uh and, you know again it's because it, it, it's the twin a lot of the stuff was a broadcast I had a show I, I actually wrote on the uh, latest incarnation of Biker Mice from Mars mm-hmm. and my episode was due to air on Fox Kids this is about two three years ago or two and a half years ago 
that very week, they decided to drop Fox Kids and go into a home shopping channel. Wow. Morning. That week, for my episode airing, it was like, they, they killed, oh, and I had three episodes. I had two other after that would not air. Wow. And I don't think anyone's ever seen it. No, actually, I think, no, actually, I think they aired on Cartoon Network later on, like uh, late, late night. They show a lot of um, some of that action stuff and but that's you know that's that's the thing about animation because it's a also a very international industry where a lot of the companies when I was working for I was wasn't working for the local studio system. There was a lot of lot of um, foreign entities where I, I, I do the work for, mm-hmm. and this is like you know everything was done in email. I mean, I had a story editor for a show where I didn't even know what he looked like for those two years I worked for him. Wow! Until recently, until we, you know, we 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 met online. We had like a they were on the same kind of um bulletin board or something. And I finally saw him. I said, "Hey, remember me?" He's like, "Of course." You know, before it's just done by emails and not even phones because you know they're based in Germany and England. And it's like who to call? I don't know. I had to call someone in in London for creative input and for contracts. I had to call someone in Germany for other issues and and and, and the shows there there not here. So sort mm-hmm. of sad. Wow. I did see them. Did get copies. I, I, <laughs> I have copies of everything now. Yeah, it took a little while. I was surprised. Yeah. Well, we will start to wrap things up, but um, oh. this is the section where we move to advice. Your advice, advice for somebody who wants to break in, and I know you covered a lot of it as as you went. But um, if somebody really loves animation, wants to break in, um, what would be the one piece of advice you would give them? Don't. That's not true. No, I wanted. To, I was actually. I did kind of want to say it as a joke, but I would say this: if it's something you really, really, really want to do, it's going to be hard to really dissuade you. And if it's a passion, plus if you're already someone who can tell great stories, you've written stuff before, and you can draw, and you have the gift. I used to draw when I was younger. I I just don't have it anymore, and so all all ever my focus has been on the written word. But if you have all that. You, if you can just like create a character like a SpongeBob, or um, if you just look at the stuff that's really like a big hit, like um, like Ben Ten, for instance, and just create characters like that, and um, definitely, you know, you, you have a shot. I would say you might have a better shot right now for a lot of things if you're Canadian, and if you're up working up there, there are a lot. I would say probably even with what the opportunities are in the U.S., if not a little more now, mm-hmm. it's shifted. There's there's more TV animated writing opportunities, I think, in Canada than here in the States. Yeah, it's huge, huge. It's, it's, it's much bigger. It's, it's getting bigger and bigger. And um, if you're American, you might have a hard time writing up there. I've had, I've, I've, I've known so many Canadians in regards to animation and said, we'd like to hire you. We just can't. There's, there's a lot of... Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tax reasons. Because, right, uh, right. Tax credits and it's, stuff. It's heavily, it's a lot of heavily funded credit industry. So, mm-hmm. You got the Canadian federal government funds a lot of animation TV, as well as you get a lot of, um, and there comes with a lot of rules where it's like you know, no foreign writers. And so mm-hmm. it's not just, you're not just picking on Americans. It's, you know, if you come from England or Australia or whatever, they, they will not hire you. Hmm. You can pitch a show and sell a show. You just can't write on it if you're from the States. So that's, wow. that's yeah, that, that happens. I've actually emailed stuff like, oh, we saw your record. This is great. I wish you can hire you. Can uh, so can you marry a Canadian? He's <laughs> <laughs> kind of joking, but half serious. Like if you do, then you know you're in Fat City. Come on up. But um, well, you don't you don't often hear about that. Usually, it's the other way around. It was, it was a true, it was a true story. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, you know, if it's also just advice, also see what's see what's coming up. Get online, uh, follow um, Animation World Network, or follow Synopsis, or 
uh, or even me sometimes, or just um, look at look at trade shows. It's interesting, like there's MIP TV, which just came up recently, where a lot of if you have trade shows, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff also does like a MIP Junior and and a Toy Fair. You start keeping an eye for things like if a new toy's coming up, that's popular. There might be like a, a cartoon coming along with that being development. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a very much uh, just being a detective about those kind of things where it's coming up. And if you can get ahead, of the, get a hold of production companies like a a big production company right now that has toys. And backstreet the studios, the network here with toys and cartoons is the hub, which is pretty much owned and operated by Hasbro. Mm-hmm. And um, if you can get a hold of the people there uh, or the people on those kind of shows, because you know there a toy is coming up that's hot, might be a good property. It's great. And the thing about animation is that you know if you can meet people and you follow up and stuff, you have, you have, a, you have a very good chance of just be able to cold call them and say, "Hey, look, I have an idea for your show. Do you have any more episodes?" I mean, mm-hmm. you can't really with TV and uh, live action television. If you try to be a writer assistant or something or try to sell a script, the person on the phone that you're talking to is a writer assistant also wants to sell a script. So you're not going to get far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just know someone above him. They're, they're going to stop you there. It's like, oh, we're staffed already. So, you know, sorry. Oh, it just, oh, your show just got greenlit two minutes ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. In two minutes we got staffed. Okay, dude. <laughs> I know your game. <laughs> so I'll just, I'll just find another way. Or, or marry a Canadian. Or American Canadian, <laughs> but, but with um, animation, you, you can. It's a definitely. It's still definitely more laid back, where you can go in, find someone's phone number if you know, give them a call and say, "Hey, look, I'm, a, I'm maybe I can say I'm a big fan, or I like the show. I know you're coming back. Can you send you some samples?" And a lot of responses. Whether you have a track record or not, they might say, "Um, yeah, sure." You know. Hmm. Interesting, because because in uh, in dramatic TV, you would never do that. No, not without an agent. But you know, it's changing a little bit. A lot of the bigger animated shows, there might be some stuff that's pretty hot, mm-hmm. pretty popular. You might have some difficulty, and they may ask you to have an agent, or, or at the very least, have you sell, sign a non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. Definitely sign the non-disclosure agreement. You know, just don't waste time. Just whip that thing out and fax it back to them, and then because you don't want to have any delay. But if you need an, need an agent, then well, that's tough. You know, you might need an agent. Yeah, but most don't. Well, that's good to know. You, you can talk directly to the story editor. You can talk directly to the person who's going to be hiring, you know, or to second the person or even a very helpful assistant. Well, okay, call my, call this person here, hmm. send a script, here's an email. You know, they, they might not promise anything. It might be a few weeks or it might be a month. You might have to keep calling every month. But eventually I get results. And I think that's tenacity pays the bills, I'd say. Very, very good to know. I'll say this. I remember you had a podcast. I just forgot his name. He was a, he was a, a TV writer. He was a Canadian. They had the series of Canadians. And he had a, uh, as a guy who was, har- I guess I would say, harvesting emails from his jobs. Remember this? About several weeks ago. Oh, Matt McLennan? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did the same thing because I often had to work as a, as a temp. And sometimes it'd be several years ago, I'd have opportunities where I'd sit at a desk. And, and you know, I, I, this, this is sort of like, it's not larcenous, I'm just saying, but you have to be resourceful and stuff. If you have to thank you. You know, we work in an apartment where, uh, you can all of a sudden, oh, I need these connections. And you sit right there. And it's like sometimes I sit there and go, you know, okay, cut, paste, moves, email myself. <laughs> and, then later. and then, you know, it, eventually I'd get the same results he did. I'd send a lot out. Sometimes you get the person to say, how'd you get this email address? And of course, I never replied. There's no way you can answer that question without getting someone in trouble. <laughs> Plus, you might not be able to work there and again. Uh-huh. And then sometimes you would get, you would get the result like, okay, well, I'm glad you um, emailed me. Sure, shoot me something. Even I've had someone who I emailed, I forgot, like two years ago, got back to me very recently. Wow. And he said, I can't help you. I'm really not doing 
producing things right now, but here's a couple of, of leads now because especially animation is a small community. You'll find you'll find a lot more agreeable people um, because it's a little smaller smaller pond. Um, I, I wouldn't say that people on live action TV will be a little more jerky, but they do have a little more layers protecting them. And if they ask you like, "Where'd you get this email from?" Like, "Oh, I got it from my work and worked at the production studio." Like, well. <laughs> It will come back to you. <laughs> so, I've had some close calls. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> you just got to be. You just got to use your noodle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we'll end it here. We've gone uh, actually longer than I thought we would, but um, I really, really appreciate this. Has been a, a, a tremendous window into a world that I think a lot of us don't know about, and um, it's pretty nebulous. In that, um, I know I've I've often talked about the fact that there's tons and tons and tons of resources about feature writing. Mm -hmm. There's a lot less about dramatic TV writing, and there's a lot, lot less about animation. So this has been awesome, and I appreciate you taking this time. I, I thank you. This is great. I'm, I'm glad to be on. Great. Well, well, thanks so much, Stephen, and best of luck to you in all your projects. And, hey, it'd be great if, if that Supernatural pilot uh, took off. I'm, I'm sure that would be a lot of fun. That would be awesome. I'm going to cross my fingers, unless someone else thinks of it. But uh, <laughs> yeah. well, definitely... Uh, I'll, I'll definitely. I'd love to do this again. Yeah, if something comes up, let me know. That'd be awesome. Wonderful. So thanks so much, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye bye. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. <laughs>